Guys, welcome to the DNA of creation. Tonight, I am so excited to share with you some of the most profound ideas in the Torah. This is like, my mind is absolutely blown in preparing this. And some of the ideas you might have heard before, but we'll put them together in a new way. And uh, I think you guys will gain a lot and really enjoy this journey that we're going on. But first, before anything, I want to wish you all a Chodesh Tov. A good Chodesh. Does anyone know what that means? Is it a new moon? New month. New month. You muted me, so I couldn't say it. <laughs> new month. And Why what's the month? Baby, Rabbi? Because you were talking to the baby. The new month Why? is... The baby supersedes you too. The month of Adar. And that's starting tonight. And the Adar is the month that Purim falls out on. And the Talmud says, Misha Niknas Adar, Marbin Basimcha. When Adar comes in, you must increase in joy, starting tonight. We're going to begin for the next two weeks increasing and increasing and increasing in joy until we get to Purim. And Purim is going to be overflow incredible. I know if you guys remember Purim last year, I think George was at my house, Gil was at my house. Purim last year, we were like, we didn't know if we could shake hands. We didn't have face masks yet. We're all like, uh, guys, what do we do? Should we dance? Should we not dance? Like, And then, and then we're nervous because I think someone was sick the next day. We're like, oh no. What happened, but we didn't get it back then. But it's been, we've come full circle. It's been a year. The world has been in a tr crazy roller coaster ride for an entire year. So, this Purim, especially, we're really, really going to be happy because we're going to realize that everything was for the purpose. And we're going to talk about that throughout the, the evening tonight. Okay, so first, we want to understand why is Adar the month of joy? Now, I know Purim's in. Adar, but Purim is a holiday. There's a lot of Jewish holidays. Why is it the holiday of joy and happiness? And why do we have to be happy the whole month of Adar? Okay? So get ready. for To answer that, remind me at the end. Okay? Question number two. And we have a lot of questions tonight. So pay close attention to all the questions. This Shabbos is also a special Shabbos called the Shabbos of Shekalim. Shekalim means shekels. Shekels. Gelt. You know what shekels are, guys, right? So, shekels are money. So why is this called the Shabbos of shekels? Because there are four special Shabboses that we observe starting this Shabbos and leading up to Passover in a month from uh, a month and two weeks from today. So there are four special Shabboses. Shkalim is one of them. Then in two weeks right before Purim, we have the Shabbos of Zachar, Parsha Zachar, where we remember Amalek which is a nation that tried to destroy us. We'll talk about that closer to Purim. And then we have Parshas Para, which is about the red cow, the red heifer. It was a ritual that we did to purify ourselves before Passover. And then we have, Sha or, no, sorry, before that is Shabbos Chodesh, Parshas Chodesh, which is the new month of Nisan, which we're going to celebrate in a month from now. They're every two weeks apart. And then we have Parshas Para, which is about the red heifer, where we purify ourselves before Passover. So this is the first one to kick it off. Parsis Shkalim, because the Torah commands the Jewish people to take a half shekel, a half shekel per person to give as a tax to the building of the Mishkan, the sanctuary in the desert. And the question is, why a half shekel? Why not a whole shekel? And we do it as a commemoration to that. And again, throughout the generations in Israel, everyone gave a half shekel this time of year as a tax to the temple. 
So everyone, all the Jews would give a tax of a half shekel. The question is, why a half shekel? Why a half shekel? And not only that, but there's a very strange medrash, a Talmudic teaching that God, Moshe didn't know what the shekel was exactly, which is strange because it's just a coin and it's a half a coin. So it says that God showed him a fiery coin, a coin of fire. God held up a coin of fire and he said, this is what you have to collect from people. And it's very questionable because there are a couple places in the Torah where it says that Moses didn't understand certain things that God said and God had to show him. But usually it's complicated things. A shekel is a coin. It's not complicated. It's not clear why God had to show him a coin of fire. Also, he could have showed him just a regular coin, but why a coin of fire? What's the significance of that? Okay, that's question number two. So we want to know why are we happy in Adar and why did God show Moses a fiery coin? And those coins in Israel was always collected this month, this time of month of the year. They would go around collecting that tax for the temple. So that's why we commemorate it now. Next, okay, this week's Parsha is called Mishpatim, which George, George, what are, mish, what are Mishpatim? I'm going to tell you, because you don't know. I'm going to tell you, they're laws, okay? So any good future lawyer should know this week's Torah portion backwards and forwards. Can I tell you why, George? This is the most Talmudic Parsha in the entire Torah. It is basically like Judaism 101 for all the stuff that you skip over when you learn about Judaism. You're like, that's boring. Why do, why do we want to learn about that? It's all laws. It's laws of civic laws. Two people fighting. Oh. What do you do? Someone kidnaps someone. Someone breaks someone's, someone's, uh, breaks someone's property. If someone's cow gores someone else's cow, right? If someone steals something, if you lend something to someone and the guy breaks it or loses it, if it gets stolen when the guy's watching it, the whole Parsha is basically just law school 101. Am I right, George? Is that law school 101? If someone opens up a pit in the ground in public property and you fall in it, or if he has a pit in private property and you fall in it, what's I the... I literally just did a case where kids fell into a pit. Are you serious? Well, to a landfill. So it's very important to point out that 3,300 years ago, we were talking about this stuff when the rest of the world was killing each other and sacrificing children to gods. We were talking about what do you do if your cow gores someone else's cow, okay? And as mundane as that sounds, that's a big deal because clearly, right, we care about doing the right thing. But it's very strange because this week's Parsha is, you know, I don't want to judge the Torah, but it's pretty boring. And yet, I mean, unless you like damages and cows and stuff like that, right? And by the way, the modern day cow is a car. So if your car bumps into someone else's car, what happens if you're parking? What if it's not your fault? What if the guy was parked in the middle of the street? What if you both hit each other? Who's responsible? Like the guy breaks and then you hit him? Who's responsible? So all these things have real modern day applications in everyday life. But the thing that's weird about it is that it's juxtaposed next to the most dramatic Torah portion in the Torah. And that was last week. Because remember what happened last week's Torah portion? We received the what? Anyone? Give you a hint. Ten the of them? The Torah. The Torah. We received the Ten Commandments. Last week's Parsha. It was, there was fire, thunder, and lightning. God spoke to the entire Jewish people. Our souls le leapt out of our body. It was like an incredible experience. The most spiritual, uplifting experience in human history. And then comes the chapter of laws. And Rashi points out something very interesting. Rashi points out two things. He says, what's the connection? What's the correlation? So Rashi says, first you should know that these laws were given at Mount Sinai, just like those laws were given at Mount Sinai. Just like the Ten Commandments, which are like the ethics of humanity, 
to believe in one God, not to kill. The like basics, principles of, of our faith and spirituality, and then come these really mundane details, like real details of the nitty gritty of stuff that does not seem spiritual at all. So Rashi points out, you should know, both of these were given at Mount Sinai. The same God that said, I am the Lord you God who took you out of Egypt, also said, if you dig a pit in the ground and your friend falls into it and breaks his leg, you got to pay. Okay? Uh, by the way, something interesting to note is, I believe it's in this week's Parsha. Uh, an, are you guys familiar with an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Anyone? What does that mean? Do what the other person did to you. The right. Same payback. I yeah. would add to that, be, uh, that I is valuable to uh, the well-being of that first person is the value that you should be taken away from him in exchange. Does it make sense? Oh, meaning, well, should, uh, one second. According to the New Testament, what does it mean? Jaylene, tell us. The punishment should fit the crime. What does it mean? Do you know New Testament? Jaylene, do you remember? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Honestly, I don't remember. So, so according to the New Testament, it means if someone knocks out your eye, you knock out his eye. And the New Testament says that law is barbaric and no longer applies. Now, if someone hits you, turn the other cheek and say, hit me more, hit me again. So that obviously is not a Jewish concept. We don't believe that you should let people hit you. Okay? But... <laughs> The eye for the eye is also not a Jewish concept. That is a misunderstanding of the Torah. And it never meant that. What it means is if someone knocks out your eye, they owe you the value of what an eye is worth. That's right. Lola got it. So it does not mean you knock out people's eyes. It means you monetary, again, monetary damages. If someone hurts someone, they have to pay the value of what they damage. Just like you break someone's leg, you pay them the value of a leg. And there is a way to evaluate a leg, so too an eye. But uh, it's also fascinating that the numerical value of the word I, it's like unbelievable. You, this Only God could write this. It says, ayin tachas ayin, I under I. The letters under the word I, if you take letters of I in Hebrew, ayin, and you move them under, you move each letter down one, it spells out kesef, which means money. So that's pretty cool. All right, but we're not doing that now. Okay, so let's keep going. So Rashi says, number one, is these laws are also from Sinai. Don't think that God only said spiritual stuff. God also said mundane stuff. And number two, Rashi points out that the Sanhedrin, which is the high court in uh, the time in Israel, the high court that decided that ruled on, on, uh, le on legal matters, especially on capital crimes, Right, death penalty crimes. Who was the? They were deciding like it was like the Supreme Court has to be right next to the temple. The temple is the place of spirituality, worship of God, connection to spirituality. Right next to that has to be the Supreme Court to teach you again that there's a connection between the mundane and the spiritual. Okay, but I want to understand something about this. All right, so it's not just that there's a connection, but there's a deep connection, and something very strange happens at the end of this week's Parsha, is we go back to the, the receiving of the Torah. At the end of this week's Parsha is one of the most dramatic spiritual revelations. So we go through this whole Parsha of mundane laws, and then at the end it talks about, again, the revelation at Mount Sinai. And according to some commentaries, it this took place actually before the Ten Commandments. And it says, 
that God revealed himself to the entire nation. And he appeared, it says, the Jewish people saw the God of Israel, and beneath his feet was sapphire brickwork. Okay, and we're going to have to understand this metaphor. This is crazy. Underneath God's feet were sapphire bricks that was similar to the sky in its purity. And the Jewish people, the elders of the Jewish people, looked at God, yet they ate and drank. That's what the Torah says. And God did not reach out his hand against them. Very bizarre, very strange. Okay, but we have this, this massive revelation of, of spirituality. And not only that, but then God Moshe goes up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and receives the Ten Commandments or the Torah. And again, we have spiritual revelation, then we have mundane for a whole Torah portion, and at the end it goes back to the revelation story. And some say it goes backwards and tells the story again. And at this point, the Jewish people say something which is, according to the Talmud, one of the most incredible statements of all time. The Jewish people say two words. Does anyone know the two words the Jewish people say to accept the Torah? Ronnie, you remember? I'll, I'll tell you. Naseh v'nishma, which right. means literally, we will do and we will listen. And the commentaries point out that it's the wrong order. What should it say? We'll, we're here for you, God. Whatever you tell us to do, we're going to listen to, and then we'll do it. But they say, no, we're going to do, and we will listen. And the Talmud points out that this is a secret that the angels, only the angels understand. What's the secret? It's not so simple. we got to understand it. Somehow, the simple explanation is we're going to do whatever you tell us to do, God. And only later we'll learn and understand why. We don't care why. What you tell us, we're going to do. That's the simple explanation, is that we are here for you. You want to give us the Torah? We don't care what it says. We don't care what's in it. And actually, the Talmud tells a story that God took the Torah before giving it to the Jews and offered it to all the nations of the world. And every nation asked what's in it. And the Jewish people came and God said, Do you want the Torah? And we said, We don't care what's in it. Whatever it is, we'll do. And that's, uh, that's a simple, simple explanation. And, and in fact, the Jews are made fun of for this. In, by the um, by the early Christians and by different sects. They said, you guys are so impetuous. You do stuff, you don't even know what it is. How could you do that? How could you say you'll do something, you don't even know what it is? Not only that, how can you do it if you don't know it? How can you do something if you don't haven't heard what it is? It's impossible. You have to first learn before you can do. So tonight's class, we're going to understand that, that phrase in a very deep way. We will do and we will listen. Okay, so I want to know now, we have, we want to know why Adar is the month of joy, why a half shekel, why a fiery half shekel was shown to Moshe, why a half shekel specifically, why does the Torah give a revelation at Mount Sinai, then mundane laws, and then another revelation of Mount Sinai, what's the significance of the sapphire brickwork under God's feet that's like the heavens in its purity, and that the elders of the Jewish people saw God, yet they ate and drank and didn't die, What's the significance of that revelation? What's the significance of the words, Nase Vanishma, we will do and we will listen? If you guys aren't dizzy enough with all these questions, we have one more, okay? That has a bunch of parts to it as well. Okay, get ready for this one. This is crazy. And we could have done a class on any of these questions, but we're, 
I really want to tie it all together because I think it's so mind-blowing. Okay, the Talmud says, in last week's Parsha, last week's Torah portion, it says the, the, the nation of Israel camped under the mountain of, of Mount Sinai. And the Talmud says, why does it use the word under the mountain? So the Talmud says a very interesting thing. It says that God picked up the mountain of Mount Sinai and held it over our heads. Okay, interesting. It's like an interesting play on, on the weird language there, but the Torah is specific. The Torah said they camped under the mountain. So the Talmud says we have to learn something from it, that God picked up the mountain and held it over our heads. So there are two explanations of what the significance is there. One is that God held us over our heads like a wedding canopy, because at Mount Sinai we got married to God. That's what happened. We got married. And... We made a commitment and we stood just like a Jewish, when Jews get married, they stand underneath a canopy, which represents their, their future home. That's supposed to be underneath the heaven, underneath the, the, the stars. So that's what we're doing. We, are, we accepted God's hand in marriage and the tablets were our wedding contract, the kasuba. But there's another explanation. The other explanation is prob, prob, more problematic. It says that God said to us, if you accept the Torah, great. If not, I'm going to drop the mountain on your heads. So that doesn't sound very fair. I mean, not only that, but you can't get married that way. If someone forces someone to get married, it's not a good marriage. It's not a kosher marriage. According to Jewish law, you can't force someone to marry you. It has to be by choice. So why is God forcing us to accept the Torah? And it's interesting to note that, that that language of the of of the Torah, the mountain being held over our head, is that God held the mountain overhead like a barrel, and uh, the Talmud talks about if someone puts a barrel over someone's head, he uses the same language and suffocates them in the barrel. So essentially, God's saying, if you don't accept the Torah, I'm going to suffocate you underneath this mountain. The mountain's hollow, apparently, and he's we're going to suffocate. So again, I want to understand the significance there, but it's really, it's really not simple because you can't be forced to accept. Why do we need to be forced to accept the Torah in the first place? Because the Jewish people said in this week's Parsha, which according to Rashi took place before the receiving of the Torah, we said, we'll do and we'll listen. We accept it. Whatever's in it, we'll do it. So why do we have to be forced? Why do you have to force us to accept the Torah if we already said we're in? We're all in. Yes. Was this because maybe of because of what they did with the golden calf? That took place or a lot later. That took place a lot later, though. Uh, so why do we have to be forced right. to accept the Torah? The whole thing is very strange. Was it because we were kind of already so assimilated into Egypt and something along those lines? Because we were kind of remember how we had talked when we were in Mitzrayim. We are already like so much assimilated into the Egyptians that we didn't want to like leave and we were very assimilated but we just went on this journey of 49 days through the desert of purifying well, ourselves know. on connecting spirituality and now we've arrived at Mount Sinai and we say we're in we want it we want the Torah so why do we have to be forced okay so I'm now going to one last point one last point then we'll tie it all together the Talmud says that that acceptance of the Torah was not genuine it was not 100% pure somehow in the time of Purim, the Purim story, which we're going to learn about in the next few weeks as well, at the time of Purim, the Jewish people accepted the Torah again, this time out of love. So what took place at Purim time that was a real acceptance of the Torah that didn't take place at Mount Sinai, which was somehow 
not a full, complete acceptance of the Torah. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to answer it with, with a lesson for life. Okay, this is the, in my opinion, the most important Jewish lesson. And you've heard it from me, if you've hung around me, you've heard it from me a few times, but there's no point in not repeating it again and again, because it's so important and we always forget it. Okay? And that is that all relationships in life take place in three stages. Three stages. There's the initial experience, which is a gift. We'll call that beginner's luck or love at first sight. Then there's the second stage where you lose the inspiration. And then there's the third stage where you earn it back and then it becomes yours. Okay, the example, the classic example is when you meet someone and you fall in love, you have this, by the way, I want to, I was thinking about a book title the other day, Failing in Love, instead of falling in love. That sound, has it been done already? Probably. So the key is not to fall. Thanks for the support of We all fail in love. Remember, you, you can't define yourself from your failures. You, you can't define you yourself it. from your failures. What do you mean? It's all about failing. You did it. You got your kids. And got we, failed, we failed many times, and we picked ourselves up, and we didn't define ourselves by our failures. We learned from our failures. That's the key. So you fall in love with someone. You have, you're amazingly inspired by each other. You are like so high from the experience. Your hormones are going crazy. Music is playing in the background whenever you see each other. You complete each other's sentences. Everything is awesome. You start dating and then, you know, every time someone comes to me and they're like, Rabbi, I'm in love. I met the right one. It's unbelievable. So I know and I'm waiting. I look at my watch and I'm like, okay, in two weeks to six months, they're going to come back here and they're going to say, Rabbi, it was a mistake. It's over. We lost the spark. All right. So that's the reality is that that initial experience does not last that experience is a combination of hormones and endorphins in your brain that make you feel great and that is not love that's infatuation or lust infatuation psychologically speaking it does not last longer than two years cannot last longer than two years so usually when that feeling ends people break up they think maybe it wasn't right. The reality is, if you learn Torah, then you know, no, that doesn't mean the experience wasn't right. It means now it's your turn to earn the experience because it was a gift. You didn't do anything to deserve it. So now, when the feeling goes away and you're experiencing lack of inspiration, lack of chemical connection, lack of chemistry, when times are tough, when things are hard, in the darkness, you put in the work in building the relationship and that's when love begins. That's love, is when you committed to the person, not to the feeling. Because when it's about the feeling, then it's all about who? You. It's all about me, because I feel great when I'm around you. It's all about me. When you lose the feeling and you stay anyway, it's about you. I'm here because I care about you. I want to build a life with you. And then after, could be 10 years of working hard on that relationship, the feeling comes back, that's stage three, now you earned it that's called real love right and you get to enjoy the experience oh well and uh you get to enjoy the experience of being together and don't think it's going to last forever there'll still be ups and downs but you get now the pleasure of the relationship that you've earned 
So you're telling me I'm not going to fall in love until I get married to the person that I'm just experiencing lust first? That's free. The love only takes place when you don't After the marriage. feel it anymore. So, okay, so, yes. Sorry, I'm out here. I have a question. Please. So there's this common known, commonly known uh, thing about like every three, no, um, some say every seven years, some say every three to four years, whatever uh, the frequency is, um, like you lose that connection with the spouse and then get back up. Like as long as you don't break up, something major happens, and then that's like the point of make it or break it. <laughs> right. Is there is there anything like that? I never heard. I never heard that it. I, if it's on a calendar, I don't know that calendar. I'm usually surprised. <laughs> so. Okay, so I want to share with you a few more places that we see this concept. The concept is really called. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And the number one classic example of that is God himself. Right? But first let's talk about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created. We talked about this here together. Back to back. One human being that was both male and female as one. That really is referring to the soul. Our souls, before they came into this world, were a composite of male and female. There was two parts in one body. Then Adam and Eve were split apart. That's the story with the rib in the Torah, according to the Talmud. And they were separated into two different bodies. And the key is to come back together as one. But this time it's not one body, it's two bodies becoming one. And that's a greater than one body. Because when two come together, it creates a higher revelation of oneness. And I'll explain the ultimate metaphor for this is God himself. God, at the beginning of time, before there was time, was absolute oneness. Undifferentiated oneness, complete and utter unity. Then he split himself up into all the pieces of creation of reality. Into a world of multiplicity, into a world of parts and pieces, of trees and mountains and stars and cosmos and gravity and time. A world of stuff. That is the antithesis of God's oneness, a world of multiplicity where you don't see oneness, a world of chaos, a world of randomness, a world of parts and pieces. The goal, what's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is that we should reveal God's oneness in the parts and pieces. When Adam and Eve come together as separate beings in harmony, that is a greater revelation of God than initially because that's oneness that we're creating with differences when two people who disagree don't see the world the same way like a man and a woman who see the world completely differently who don't think alike don't feel alike don't look alike they come together and they learn to live with each other despite the fact that men are from mars and women are from venus and they learn to communicate that is the greatest revelation of oneness that can take place in the world so we have two concepts we have unity and we have harmony. If you sing in unity, unison, what note are you singing? Musicians? Anyone? Same note as everyone else. Same note. But what about when you sing in harmony? Think of chord. In harmony, everyone's singing a different note, but it comes together. And which is more beautiful? Depends. Come on, tell me, tell me the answer I want to hear. 
Harmony. Harmony is much more beautiful. When you take gil and art, when you take different colors and you put them together, you take complementary colors, you put them in a way that it, that that brings out the differences, right? It pops out off the page. It's incredible. As opposed to the same color, right? If the world was all one color. So that's the idea of of the meaning of life is to reveal God's oneness in the parts and pieces in the differences of this world each and every one of us is a color each and every one of us is an instrument we all have a, a note that we can play that no one else in this world can play if you learn to play your instrument if you learn to play to shine your color to, to let your soul vibrate its frequency to the world you have something to bring to the world that no one else can bring but if we're all fighting, it's not going to work. We got to bring out each other's colors and learn to play to the conductor, right? Uh, Thoreau, famous uh, existential philosopher from the uh, Civil War time, he said, "Every man has to march to the beat of their own drummer." And I say that's wrong. The key is not to march to the beat of your own drummer because then it's chaos. That's noise. The key is to march to the beat of the master conductor, the creator of the universe. He gave us a Torah and showed us how to live life in accordance to the ultimate purpose. But we all have to play our own instrument. That's the key. If you play your instrument to your own drummer, you're living in a world of chaos. But if you can play your own instrument to the beat of the master conductor, then we create the most beautiful harmonious symphony that's possible. And that is the vision that the Jews saw at Mount Sinai. They saw under God's feet, and this idea is from my, my friend Rabbi Yitzchak Feldheim, under God's feet, sapphire bricks that were similar to the heavens in their purity. What do sapphire bricks look like? What color are sapphire bricks? Purple. Blue. 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 Sapphire bricks under God's feet. A, that are similar to the sky in its purity. If I want to give you a metaphor for God's oneness, what might metaphor from the natural world might I choose? If I want to take a metaphor from nature for oneness, complete oneness, unity, where everything is the same, where all there is is one thing, what would I choose? The ocean. Ocean. Ocean's made up of lots of different things. It might be actually the opposite of oneness. All right, there's lots of stuff inside the ocean. But what's something that to us shows just complete purity? Air. air. Meaning what? What symbol is air? The sky. The sky. The completely pure blue sky. And that's exactly what this image is. That under God's feet is sapphire bricks. What do sapphire bricks look like? The Torah says that are like the heavens in their purity. So what's the difference between sapphire bricks and the sky? The sky is complete unity. All there is is God. Sapphire bricks, the exact opposite. Lots of little pieces, puzzle pieces, that are put together to reveal complete pure blue. 
yet it's made up of lots of little pieces. It's a mosaic universe. It's a puzzle. You ever make a puzzle growing up? Right? So you have like one of those like 2,000 piece puzzles. So this is again a metaphor from Rabbi Feldheim, but it's unbelievable. Why do people make, if you get together, you put all the puzzles on the, on the floor, you put it together, and then you ever see people that frame it and put it on the wall? Why go through I all that? One of the twin towers. Why go through all that work? Why not just cut out the box when you get the puzzle? Just cut off the cover on the box and put okay. it in a frame. What's the difference? It's the process. <laughs> ah. the process that it takes to do it. It's the mental sweat, and it's you know it's, it's it's much more beautiful to make something and work hard at it and say, "Wow, I created that," than it is to just take what is already whole. Julia, you said it perfectly. God wants us to be partners I with made, him. I made puzzles when I was little. God wants us to be partners with him in creating the world. He wants us to reveal his oneness through the pieces of the puzzle. To go through the process of putting those puzzles together, taking the chaos of this world and showing that it's all unified, that there's a oneness, there's a harmony, there's a purpose here. There's a creator who's talking to us from behind the scenes, behind the pieces of the puzzle. Put those pieces together and reveal the most beautiful picture that was there all along, but he wanted us to reveal it because he wants us to be partners with him, to reveal the harmony because it's so much more beautiful when you take it from the disparate parts, from the opposites, from the chaos, and you make order. That's the most beautiful story. So that's the story of this world. And now the Jewish people at Mount Sinai were able to see God, yet they ate and drank and they didn't die. Because what would happen if God were revealed himself to you right now? If God were to just reveal his oneness to you right now, what would happen to you? Faint. You would faint. You wouldn't faint. You would be evaporated. You would cease to oh. exist. Because if you go too close to the sun, you melt into the sun. In oneness, there are no parts. If we were to see God's oneness, we wouldn't be there. Because in God's oneness, there are no parts. But, but God, I heard when the Jewish... I heard when they saw God, they fainted once, and then they fainted yes. twice, and then God had to tell Moses, okay, you Excellent. talk to them. So in so last week's Parsha, when God spoke to the Jewish people, their souls literally left, leapt out of their bodies. They died yeah. twice. They couldn't they handle yeah. the revelation. And yet, What about uh, all the uh, biblical personalities like Moses who've spoken to God and... Uh, so the Torah says, you can see my back, but you can't see my face. A person can't see me and live. What that means is that you cannot experience oneness and still be there because oneness doesn't have you in it. Oneness doesn't have people or parts. The key that God created is a universe of separation from him, a world where he's hidden so that we can exist and find him without burning up. That is the key to this whole story of creation is how can we connect to God while still existing? And the answer is, if you put two and two together, if you've been paying attention, how do we connect to God without burning up? Where does that take place? Right here, in the physical, in the world of parts and pieces, in the world of instruments. We're going to connect to God's oneness without going back up through the prism to the infinite light, right? White light shone through the prism, all the colors of the rainbow. We live on the other side of the prism. We live in a world with colors of the rainbow. We're all different colors of the rainbow. I'm blue, you're red, you're green, right? And so on and so forth. God is white light. That includes all the colors, but without them being there. Are they there or are they not there? The answer That's is amazing. 
They're there in potential. But you need a prism. You need to throw it into the world of three dimensions, right? The prism is the pyramid. It has to go through the three dimensions to break out into all the colors. The goal is not to go back through the prism to go back to white light. The goal is to bring those colors of the rainbow together to reveal the harmony, to show that the source of everything is white light, that we're all connected in our source. But in this world, we're different. Adam and Eve coming together as two different bodies is a much greater revelation than going back to being one body. That's our job, is to show oneness in multiplicity. And we do that through the world. Now the Jewish people are able to eat and drink and see God and not die. For the first time in history, we can connect to the greatest revelation of spirituality without dying through the Torah and mitzvahs. We're able to connect to the infinite in the world. That is the uniqueness of the Torah, is that we can connect to spirituality while being physical, not denying our bodies, not giving up on the pleasures of this world, but by doing it in a way that connects us to the infinite. And now we can understand why on one end we have a revelation at Mount Sinai and then we go right into the most mundane laws of cows and loaning things to people and digging pits because the Torah is telling us there's no difference. The way we're going to connect to spirituality is through the physicality. The, mo the spiritual center of the universe and the temple in Jerusalem and right next to it is the civic center of the Jewish people, the Supreme Court, because there's no difference. In fact, you need them both in order to connect to God. Spiritual revelation through the physical, through the mundane. So now the question is, what was the great revelation where the Jewish people said, Nase Vanishma will do and we will listen? So here's the answer. It's through the doing that will come to connect to God. Listening is spiritual. It's internalizing. It's understanding. It's through the doing. That's how you're going to come to understand God. Do His will as if it was your will, and He's going to make your will His will. It says in Perkeavos, but that's for another time. We're the and another way of understanding it is the Talmud says they were hakdimo nase lenishma. They put nase before nishma. They put doing before hearing. What that means, another way of understanding it is they put priority. They gave priority to the doing over the hearing. Hearing is a spiritual experience, understanding. It means understanding God, connecting to spirituality. They put doing above that. And that's what the Torah says. It's not about what you believe. right? Christianity is a religion of creed. Judaism is a religion of deed. At the end of the day, belief is important, but your actions speak louder than your words. It's how do you live your life? Do you put your money where your mouth is? So they put doing over understanding. And the angels, the Talmud says, said, who revealed to them the secrets of the universe that we know? What does that mean? So this is my, my, this is my novel idea for the day. For me, is that the angels know better than us that doing is more important than understanding. Why is that? because the angels see God's infiniteness much clearer than we do. They understand the greatness of God's oneness, and they still realize that no matter how close you are to God, how far are you? Answer the question. No matter how close you get to God, how far are you? Infinite. Infinite. You're still infinitely far. No matter how much you understand God, how little do you understand of Him? How much do you understand of Him? 
You spend your whole life meditating and praying and understanding and learning Torah and learning Kabbalah. How much of God do you really understand? Nothing. Fraction. Nothing. And that's why I said to you guys a few weeks ago that I learned the most amazing idea in the Chovas Levavas written in the uh, written a thousand years ago by Rabbeinu Bachia in Spain. He says that righteous people do tshuva. They repent every single day of their lives because today I understand God better than I did yesterday. Today I have more appreciation for the goodness that he's done for me than I did yesterday. We have to live our lives like that. Constantly growing, growing in leaps and bounds every day in our appreciation and our gratitude for this amazing life. Even when things don't go good, we have to realize how good we have it. So the angels understand the greatness of God much more than we do, and they still know that it's a drop in the bucket. But when it comes to mitzvahs, when it comes to doing actions, when you put on tefillin, or when you keep Shabbos, or when you keep kosher, or when you give charity to a poor person, how close are you to God at that moment? Incredibly, in just that moment. 100%. You are 100% doing God's will. That means you are united with speech, thought, and action with God 100%. In understanding of God, you're always infinitely far. But in action, you are 100% connected when you do what God wants us to do. And that's what the Torah is all about. It's mitzvahs. God tells us how he wants us to connect to him. And this is the foundation of love. Because if you don't tell your spouse how to show you love, then it's all about them. Love only happens when your spouse has needs and you fill those needs. When you yeah, do what your spouse you wants, that? that's love. Making someone else's will, your will, is the definition of love. But how can you do things without understanding or asking questions? Like, I don't want to just do things just to do things. I want to understand. Right. I want to know You're why. right. The more we understand, the better. Right? If, your wife, if my wife says, I want you to go get me flowers on my birthday. And I'm like, flowers? What's the point of flowers? They're going to die in a few days. She says, no, I want flowers. And I go out on her birthday and I get her a beer because I like beer on my birthday. And I get it for her and she's not going to be, is she going to be happy with me? Will I be sleeping on the couch that night? Yes. So love is about doing what? What the other person wants, whether or not you understand it. Understanding is greater. Now I can get closer and appreciate them more and give it to them with more feeling. But even if you don't understand, we will do and we will listen. That's the foundation of love. No matter what, I will do what you want. I'm here. My mission in this world is to make you happy. When people get married, they are making a statement that the meaning of life from now on is to make you happy. The rest of my life is devoted to filling your needs. That's what love is all about. Obviously, you have to have a self, and you have to take care of yourself, and respect yourself, and have self-care, and sleep, and have self-esteem. But once you have all those things, then you are ready to give to another person, and that's when marriage begins, is it's all about you. So, the pinnacle of, the, of a Jewish wedding, okay, is what really makes the wedding happen. And there's a couple of things that we do, but one of the things is the signing of a kasuba which is a wedding contract. And people, a lot of times, they write it really fancy and they put it up on their wall and they frame it. The thing is, if they knew what it meant in Aramaic, ancient Aramaic, they would not have it on the wall. Because there's, it's the least romantic 
document in in history. It says nothing. It, what you know what a kasuba says? A kasuba says first of all the husband is obligated to support the wife and take care of her needs, and then it says and if there's a termination of the marriage, then he owes her a certain amount of money. That's what it says. Really? Yes. Really? Is this, is this legally binding? It's a prenup. It's a prenup. That uh, is the wedding contract. So it sounds so unromantic. The answer is it's the most romantic thing. Not for me. I want to not explain to you why. I want, I'm going to mute you again, Julie. I'm going to explain to you why it is the most romantic thing. Okay, you ready? Because romance is, is false. It's not about that feeling. It's about the commitment. It's about me telling you I will never leave you. And in Judaism, divorce is not an option. The moment you get married, you've given your soul to the other person. You say, I will be here for you forever. If there's abuse, then divorce is an option. But it's a last resort in normal situations. Why? Because you can make it work. The commitment you made at the wedding is I will be here and make it work. I will fight and overcome all of my issues and overcome all of the resistance to make our lives work together. And whenever there's a divorce, it means they failed, but they could have succeeded. They could have been bigger and made it work because their souls were meant to be together. Does that mean that it always works out? No, it doesn't always work out. We, we allow divorce, but it's not an option. It's a last resort. Okay? Is that clear? Because marriage is about work and commitment. And that's how you get through to the third phase. Because that love at first sight, the honeymoon phase, is not real. But at the wedding, when you say, Nase Vanishma, I'm going to marry you no matter what. You know why we check, like we wear veils, everyone wears veils because of the Torah, okay? One of the reasons why we check there's a there's a custom to cover the bride's face is because Jacob when he married he wanted to marry Rachel Rachel and her father switched her and her sister so he ended up marrying the wrong sister so we always check to make sure that it's the wife that we want to marry but the deeper explanation is you think you're marrying Rachel the reality is you're marrying Leah you have no idea who you're marrying and if you're dating I don't care if you're dating and living together for 10 years before you get married as soon as you're married, the wife especially should feel safe to be herself. She did not feel that way when you were dating. It's impossible to feel safe when you're dating because when you're dating, it's an experiment. The other person is deciding, are you filling my needs? Do I want you, right? When you're dating, who's it about? You. You. It's 100% you because if you don't like it, you leave. That's the definition of dating. The definition of marriage is I don't like it, I stay. Unfortunately, nowadays, people don't realize what marriage is all about. They think it's just dating with a ring and, and a mortgage, but that's not the case. Okay, so what we say is, I'm marrying Rachel, I'm going to end up with Leah. You're going to change. All sorts of things are going to happen in the next 50 years that we're married together, 70, 80, 90 years together. A lot of things are going to change. You're going to be a different person when you're pregnant, when you're nursing, you know, when you're 50. You, Next week, I don't know, we, we go through flux and there's hard times. These fireworks are not going to be here forever. But I'm marrying you. No matter who you become, no matter what happens down the road, I am committing myself to learn to love you. Okay? And I'll deal with it then. 
So in the darkness, when the relationship becomes painful and hard, that's when it becomes real. So now I want to explain to you what happened at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God revealed himself to us. It was obvious that there was a God. How could you not say I do in the honeymoon phase? We love you. Nasev and we'll do whatever you want. We were experiencing love at first sight. There were literally fireworks coming out of the mountain. We were blown away with love for God, but it wasn't real because we were so infatuated. And therefore, God held the mountain over our heads. And he said, we're getting married right now. Marriage means it's not a choice. This isn't something nice. This is an obligation. You are committed to me forever. And if you don't keep your part, I'm going to suffocate you with the mountain. Because the Torah is not something nice. The Torah is your oxygen. You can't live without Torah. I'm literally going to put the mountain over your head and take away your air if you don't keep the Torah. It wasn't a real relationship yet, though. And then comes the Purim story. And the Purim story was the exact opposite scenario. In the Purim story, there's someone that's missing from the entire story. Does anyone God. know? God. There's no mention of God in the Purim story. There's no open miracles. There's no thunder. There's no lightning. There's no fireworks. There's no infatuation. We experience complete and utter darkness. We felt like the world was over. The entire Jewish people were supposed to be killed in one day. We saw no open miracles. It was just seemingly random events and coincidences. And yet, in that darkness, we said, I love you. I'm faithful to you. We're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. And according to the Jewish people, they had a tradition that they were supposed to be redeemed and the temple would be rebuilt. And it didn't happen. And they thought... They could have given up and said, God has abandoned us. And yet they didn't. They say, they said, we're holding out. And we had faith in him. And you know what happened? He had faith in us. And he said, I'm with you and I'll always be with you, even in the darkness. Even in the darkest moments of your life. That's the Purim story. And then we saw that through all the events of the story, it was all miraculous it was one incredible story from beginning to end we just had to hold on and wait till the end to see that god's hand was orchestrating the entire thing from the very beginning that's what porn is all about and we'll talk more about that in subsequent weeks but now that is why purim is the holiday of joy adar is the last month of the year jewish calendar nisan next month Nisan, does anyone know what Nisan means? The first month, it's the, it's the month of the Exodus. It's the month of the Exodus. Nisan means miracles. It's the month of miracles. It's the month of open miracles, of ten plagues, of ten commandments, of God revealing us, Him to us. Adar is the farthest away from that experience. It's the month of darkness. The word Adar comes from the word Adarit, which means a cloak. It's like everything is cloaked in darkness. We don't see. We don't see God. And yet we know he's with us in the darkness. And the word Adar is explained to mean Aleph, which means the the one, the number one, the oneness. The word Aleph means the chief, the Alufusha Olam, the chief of the world. Aleph Dor, it means oneness dwells with us. In the darkness, in the cloak of that darkness, God is with us. 
And that is the greatest joy, is that we experienced true love in Purim. And we accepted the Torah for real this time, because it's phase three. It's when we do it because we want to, because we've earned that connection through the hardships that we've been through. That is true love. And then we saw that it was meant to be. It was a marriage made in heaven, literally. And that, finally, is the message of the half shekel that we're going to be commemorating this Shabbos. Why was Moses shown a fiery half shekel? And why were the Jews supposed to bring a half shekel? Why not a whole shekel? The answer is God is telling us, you have half the shekel, you have half the coin, I have the other half. Literally, our souls are connected. We're connected to God. We only see half the picture in this world. The other half is with him, and he's holding that coin, the other half of our soul. He's literally part of him, and he's telling us, I'm taking care of you every step of the way. There is never a moment of your life when you're alone. There's never a moment of your life that you have to be afraid, that you have to be scared, because everything is part of a master plan, and that's the message. And so again, just to cap, summarize everything, we have the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Then we have laws, most mundane physical laws of how to run a state and how to deal with damages and, and accidents and borrowing things and money. And then we have the revelation again to show us the story of human history, the story of reality of creation. Is There's a thesis, a thin, an antithesis, and a synthesis. There's the oneness of God thrown into the multiplicity of life. And the goal is to create harmony, to reveal harmony. That's every experience in our life is a free gift, it's taken away, we have to earn it in the darkness, and then we get it back. And if you hold on in the darkness, just know there is an incredible love, an incredible joy that's waiting for you around the corner. So when things get tough, don't give up. Hold on and work through the hardship. Work through the darkness. The good times are coming. Thank you guys for listening. We should be merit that this other we should see how the entire year that we've been through since last Purim and the reason so many Jews unfortunately were tragically killed at the beginning of coronavirus was because of Purim last year and people had no clue what was coming we had no idea we had guests we didn't know do we have to wear gloves do we we didn't know we didn't know anything back then and this Purim hopefully we'll see that the whole story this whole year this whole crazy year that we've been through we're going to see the big picture it was all for a purpose it was all bringing helping to bring the world to the ultimate conclusion where we can all live together in peace with the coming of mashiach the jewish people will be united as one the world will be united as one and hopefully it'll happen very very soon questions comments thank you guys for listening